And now, from the gleaming spires of Chicago, broadcasting across the multiverse, from the heights of Hlidskjalf to the depths of Niflheim, from the MCU to the DCU, from the slopes of Mount Olympus and beyond, you are tuned to the immortal sounds of Radio Free Asgard. And hello, everybody, and welcome to Radio Free Asgard. This is episode number 322. We're coming at you, as always, from beautiful Chicago, Illinois. We're the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin and a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. Summertime means movie time. Yeah, lots of stuff coming out in the the last few weeks. Uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which I'll talk about in a sec. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp out this week. Uh, Looking forward to seeing that. It ought to be interesting. Kind of wondering what happened with them during the whole uh, Infinity War spiel. And I guess we're going to find that out. So uh, Pete and I actually, we did go see uh, Jurassic World. And the reason why we went to see it is because we kind of got on a kick where, uh, well, Pete was watching all of the old Jurassic movies uh, over again. And there's actually still one I haven't seen, which is uh, Jurassic Park 3. But, yeah, I, I know that's not the best one. And I also started playing this new game on my phone called Jurassic World Alive. If you think about Pokemon Go... And you switch your Pokemon for dinosaurs, that's pretty much Jurassic World alive. Um, so I have to say uh, I've been playing that probably a little bit more than I should. But, uh, hey, it's, it's fun. You know, it gets me outside, gets me moving around. That's, that's all stuff that I need to do. Uh, now, the movie itself, not going to give any spoilers away. It's uh, kind of a mixed bag. I actually like the movie quite a lot. Uh, there's uh, some really good parts of it. There's some funny parts to it. There's a couple particularly sad parts to it. But, uh, yeah, overall, I, I think that uh, they did a pretty good job. And I know that they're doing a, a last movie in that trilogy. And I'm very anxious to see what that is, what, what exactly they're going to do, how they're going to proceed away from the second one with uh, you know, the conclusion that this one had. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see, and, and I'm looking forward to it. So if you like dinosaurs, highly recommend uh, Jurassic World, The Fallen Kingdom, and, uh, yeah, try the game, too. Uh, right now, there's no way to friend people in the game, but, you know, if they ever have that, uh, I'll, I'll give out my, uh, my friend code or whatever it is online. I, I really like the, uh, the Jurassic World Alive uh, combat system, which is way better than anything that Pokemon Go has. And there, there's other good things about the game, too. It's a little more limited in the fact that they don't have nearly as many dinosaurs as there are Pokemon. And so there's a certain amount of grinding that you have to do. But the PvP alone, it makes the game way worth playing, uh, as far as I'm concerned. All right, so I'm done rambling here. We do have an issue, well, a half an issue of Thor to cover, so let's move along to our review. Cross the rainbow bridge of Asgard, where the booming heavens roar. You behold in breathless wonder the god of thunder, mighty Thor. So, as promised this week, we are looking at the second half of the mighty thor number 400 and yeah so we have a few things to cover here so the first thing we have is a bonus feature 
and it is called I This Hammer. Or if you knew Uru like we knew Uru, and the uh, writer is Tom DeFalco, the penciler is Ron Friends, Brett Breeding is the finisher, Joe Rosen is the letterer, Brett Breeding also did the colors. This is a mini feature about Mjolnir, and so we have a, a splash here of Thor flying through the air with Mjolnir, and we're basically finding out what Mjolnir can do, and I'll kind of describe the pictures here as I read the captions. Many are the wonders of Mjolnir, the enchanted hammer of Thor, and we'd like to take this opportunity to share a few of them with you. Composed of Uru, a magical metallic substance which can only be found on Asgard. The hammer is two feet long and its handle is wrapped in leather. Thor can propel himself through the air by hurling the hammer and holding onto its thong. By means which are beyond moral comprehension, Thor can always control the course of his flight. I think that has to do more with the, <laughs> the needs of the plot, doesn't it? We don't know the top speed or distance Thor can attain with a single throw, but it's probably much faster and farther than we'd ever want to travel. Uh, we then have a, a picture of various villains, and we have the Hulk and Ulick and the Grey Gargoyle and the Wrecker and the Absorbing Man, and we have the Hulk dead center. And this is the Grey Hulk, because that was the era that this uh, was published in, where we have the, the, uh, the Grey Hulk series going on. And uh, we have the Hulk trying in vain to uh, lift the hammer. Thanks to a special enchantment, which was placed upon the hammer by Odin, who just happens to be Thor's father and the omnipotent ruler of the Norse gods, no living being can lift Mjolnir unless he or she is someone who Odin himself would deem worthy of possessing the hammer. A lot of pretty powerful people, some of the strongest beings in the known universe, have tried to raise it, but they've all failed. Well, we'll, we'll get to that at the end of the story, because some people have not failed. Possessing his own superhuman strength, Thor often employs Mjolnir as a formidable throwing weapon that shows Thor uh, throwing the weapon really, really far. Nearly indestructible, it has been known to shatter mountains and pulverize whole planetoids. And no matter how far it's thrown, no matter what it strikes... The hammer always returns to Thor's hand. And we see uh, Thor, he, he's kind of flung the hammer over some mountains, and then the hammer just returns to his hand. Yeah, yeah because that's, that's what it does. Uh, we have uh, Thor sitting in a storm, and we're getting, getting a little explanation of uh, what it can do. As the god of thunder, Thor can also use his magic hammer to summon his storm. Wind, rain, thunder, and lightning can be called from the heavens by merely stamping the handle twice on the ground. Three taps ends the storm. Thor can also fire various forms of mystical energy from the hammer without striking it on the ground. And they show Thor uh, blasting some sort of fire. Uh, we, and we've seen him do this many times, of course, but that shows him doing it. The hammer can also open interdimensional portals and transport Thor to distant dimensions and other planes of reality. Hey, you didn't expect old Goldilocks to take mass transit whenever he went home for the holidays, did ya? And we have a picture here of Thor doing the Ajax White Tornado thing and whipping it around, and he's traveling uh, between New York City and uh, the Rainbow Bridge. And, uh, yeah, New York City, we have some spectators. Yeah, because he's in the middle of the road, because, you know, that's the way uh, Thor rolls. And uh, he lands on the Rainbow Bridge, and, of course, Heimdall is there, because Heimdall is always there. Next page is a full-page spread. We've got a, an image of Thor holding his hammer in the background, and in the foreground, it is Sigurd Jarlson, and he is... His, bopping the hammer on the ground to change into Thor. In times past, Thor transformed into mortal identity by stamping the hammer once on the ground and willing the change to occur. 
This would also cause the hammer itself to become a gnarled wooden walking stick. But these days, our hero doesn't have a mortal identity, so he just uses this particular enchantment whenever he wants to switch his civilian clothes for his Thor costume. Or vice versa. Okay, so that is that uh, little uh, explanatory uh, little featurette, the five pages long. Uh, Well-written, well-structured. It's a great little story. Very, It's basically just telling you what is what. Um, art is fantastic. It's really good. Ron Friends, Brett Breeding on the art. Uh, it's a very nice job. Everything looks great. Obviously, they had some time to work on it. So, yeah. Uh, it, it's just a beautiful, well-written little featurette. Kind of one of my favorite bits of the uh, the book so far. The art's very good. And then we have a full-page spread. Who shall be worthy? And these are various people who were found worthy to uh, lift the hammer. It has been said that a sacred bond unites all those who have been privileged to wield Mjolnir, a bond which stretches far into infinity. Well, we'd like to take a moment to honor a select few who share that special bond. And they have uh, Steve Rogers as the captain, uh, because that was still in that era when he was not Captain America. Steve Rogers, who lifted the hammer in the middle of a pitched battle and managed to throw it to its rightful owner in Thor number 390. Odin, the Allfather, who ordered the hammer forged and bestowed various enchantments upon it. Beta Ray Bill, a semi-humanoid alien who seized a gnarled wooden stick from Thor's mortal identity, struck it against a wall and found himself possessing the powers of the Thunder God in Thor 337. Dargo, a teenager in the year 2587 who accidentally grasped Mjolnir during a religious ceremony in Thor number 384. And of course, there's our hero, old Goldilocks himself, the noblest as guardian of all. Uh, one page spread. Again, artwork's really good. Text's kind of self-explanatory. Uh, so what, the second appearance of Dargo? <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's not the last appearance of Dargo. But yeah, that mullet uh, just has to go. Uh, we, next page, we have The Heart of the Hero, a Mighty Marvel bonus feature. And we have a assortment of the females in Thor's life. And, of course, we have the, the introduction blurb here. A man is known by the company he keeps. The same is true for Thunder Gods. And our hammer-hurling friend has kept the company of some of the sexiest, most stunning and exciting women in the known universe. God, that's laying it on a bit thick, isn't it? Just feast your eager eyes on this bevy of beauties. And don't say we never did anything for you. And we have um, five women on this page. In order, from top to bottom, we have uh, Jane Foster. Her tragic love for Dr. Don Blake, Thor's former mortal identity, was doomed from the very start. Uh, center, we have Amora, the Enchantress. In times past, she often sought to ensnare Thor with her captivating charms and seductive sorceries. But these days, she seems to have found happiness in the arms of Heimdall, the faithful guardian of the Rainbow Bridge. Well, that's going to last, right? We, then we have the Lady Sif, and she's dressed in her uh, a version of her uh, red and white armor, which uh, actually I, I kind of like it. I don't know if we've ever seen this version of her armor before, but it says uh, Lady Sif, a warrior goddess of Asgard. She first fell in love with Thor when they were teenagers. Unfortunately, Thor's attachment with the planet Earth has often come between them. Um, yeah, so here I think we are seeing the beginning of that retcon where Thor didn't know Sif as a child who was much younger than him. 
this is actually now the, they, they've switched over to her being a contemporary of his, maybe because it's a little bit less creepy. Um, and then we have a picture of Lorelai. Lorelai, the younger sister of Amora, she once used a magic potion to make Thor fall madly in love with her. So what else? Finally, and, and drawn by far the smallest of any of the uh, the other characters, Hela, the goddess of death. Condemned by Odin to rule the dark and misty land of the dead, she has often tried to strike back at the Allfather by claiming the life of his favorite son. So that was uh, Thor's women. And now we get another little story. And this story is called When Volstagg Was in Flower. A special tale based on a newly discovered version of an ancient myth. Don't know about that. Um, I don't really have a lot of information about that, but uh, okay. So anyway, we have the uh, credits for this. Tom DeFalco was the writer. Ron Friends plotted it. Rich Janiszewski was the penciler. Mark McKenna was the inker. Diana Albers was the letterer. And Robbie Bush was the color. So this has got to be one of those Marvel tryout stories. Uh, and we'll find out why as we as we go on. But, but yeah, the regular author of the book has actually wrote the story. And the uh, splash shows Hogan and Fandral, and they are fighting with with uh, quarterstaffs hand to hand. And uh, it looks like they're both sweating and straining here. And Fandral says, "Surrender, my friend. Have the wit and grace to accept thy defeat as a foregone conclusion. Many are the heroic deeds of Hogan the Grim. Many are the honors heaped upon thee. But this contest truly belongs to Fandral the Dashing." Let thy strength of thy limbs put the lie to thy boasting words, says Hogan. And with a thwack, uh, he almost knocks uh, Fandral off of the log. And they're on a, a log that's kind of over a river. So obviously the game is you have to knock the other person in. And uh, it looks like Fandral's off balance. And Hogan says, Behold, victory is mine. Nay, I say thee nay, says Fandral. Few are thy equal in raw strength and power. But when it comes to speed and cunning, none can compare with Fandral the Dashing. And he does this sort of strikeout thing with his, uh, his staff, and he manages to knock Hogan's legs out from under him with a pwam! And Hogan goes and he falls down into the, uh, uh, the water with a, with a splash. And uh, it's not very deep water, obviously, and, and Hogan's sitting in the water looking all wet. And he says... Well done, comrade. Thou hast truly bested me. Wouldst thou care to try again? Methinks I shall quit well ahead, says Fandral. Only a fool tempts fate a second time when there is naught to be gained, save an untimely bath. And uh, Fandral's helping Hogan out of the uh, water, and there's a bunch of children who come running. And it, it's Volstagg's children, we know, because those are pretty much the only children in Asgard. And, uh, and then in the front are the two uh, Earth children that uh, were uh, brought into uh, Volstagg's household uh, the, during the, uh, I think, the very end of the Simonson run. And they're, they're saying, We knew you could beat him, Uncle Fandral. Oh, Uncle Hogan, let him win, says uh, one of the girls. More, we want to see more, says one of the other kids. Wow, you two are much better than any of the heroes Mick and I had when we lived on Earth. Yeah, Stallone and Schwarzenegger got nothing on you. We have just one question. Why do warriors like you pal around with a family guy like Volstagg? Don't get us wrong. 
Kevin and I are real thankful that he adopted us and brought us to Asgard, but he just isn't in the same league as you two. And that gets uh, Fandral angry. And he, he's, he's all mean looking here. He says, insolent pups, how dare ye? And, and Hogan uh, stops Fandral from being angry. And he's like, calm thyself. They are only children. Perhaps a tale is in order. Dost thou mean? Aye. And Fandral decides he's going to tell the story. And he pulls up a, like a seat on a big tree gnarl. And he says here, Gather round, all ye children of valiant Vostag. Uncle Fandral has a tale to tell, one which ye shall find most interesting. And they gather around, and he starts telling a story. We have a Fandral here. He's... Uh, he, looks, he doesn't look any younger. He looks exactly the same. But uh, anyway, uh, Fandral saying, uh, Many years ago, a young warrior strode the road to Asgard. He was a handsome lad, one destined to break the hearts of many a fair maiden. Determined was he to offer his flashing sword in the service of his beloved king, Odin the Almighty. His mind filled with visions of glory, he began to cross a small stream. And it is a small bridge, uh, not unlike the uh, log that is over the, uh, the river that they're uh, knocking each other off in the beginning of the story. And it says, suddenly he noticed that his path was blocked. And we see a, uh, a thinner version of Volstagg. It's, it's, it's very obviously Volstagg. He wears the same colors. Basically, he's wearing the same costume, except he's not uh, big and fat, he's more uh, muscular, and he has hair on top. So, uh, so yeah, so this is many years ago, obviously. It says that it was blocked by a rather large and ominous obstruction. Awake, hello, youth, he says. Tis not the time to be a dreamin'. The Lion of Asgard claims this bridge as his own, and I would learn the destination of all who would trod upon it. To Asgard go I, says Fandral, to seek my fortune and lay my sword at the feet of the All-Father. Ha! Odin has need of warriors, not children. Retrace thy steps. Return thee home. None may cross this bridge unless they have proven themselves worthy by defeating me in single combat. And uh, we see the Volstagg is holding a, uh, uh, like a, a, a quarterstaff, basically, here. And um, Vandal says, "'Twould be my pleasure, honored sir." And the narration says, "'With the reckless confidence of youth, "'the warrior quickly leapt to the shore.'" And he uh, takes his sword and he hacks off the limb of a tree because he's a tree murderer. And he makes a quarter staff out of that, that branch. And he says, uh, one moment is all I need to prepare a suitable weapon, a quarter staff, so that we will be equally matched. And he completes it in apparently just seconds. <laughs> and he then uh, grabs his quarter staff and he goes back over the bridge, uh, tried to knock um, uh, Volstagg off, apparently. There, I am ready, but to be fair, I must warn thee, my skill with the staff is almost equal to my mastery of the sword. Hurry, hurry, my lunch awaits, and I grow weary of thy arrogance, says Volstagg. And uh, says, within an instant, the battle was joined. Have at thee, lad. And uh, he says, let us see if thy battle prowess can match thy fearless mouth. And they're fighting back and forth, and Volstagg is like, not bad. Thou dost show a glimmering of talent. Ha! Thou knowest full well that thy defeat is at hand, says Fandral. Confess, old man, the fear is rising in thy throat. 
Oi, I am afraid. Afraid that I might accidentally kill thee. Alas, this contest goes not the way I planned, says Volstagg. And he takes his uh, staff with a thunk. Uh, he knocks the um, quarterstaff out of Fandral's hand. And he knocks him off the bridge with a quack. And into the water with a... Uh, there's no sound effect, but he splashes into this murky, kind of icky gray water. I had truly hoped to find thee a greater challenge, says Volstagg. And Fandral comes crawling out of the water... And um, Volstagg is saying, Verily, I am disappointed. This quick victory did not appease my battle-hungry heart. Despair not, says Fendel. Mayhap I can yet amuse thee, if thou wilt do me the honor of a second bout. And so they're preparing to do this, and uh, <laughs> Volstagg says, Thou hast courage, boy. Tis a pity that it is not coupled with intelligence. This time we shall battle on my terms, says Fendel. He uses the quarterstop basically as a, a pole vault, and he jumps over Volstagg, and he's, he's talking while he's doing this. He says, uh, with skill and grace, not brutish strength. And Volstagg says, Odds blood, thou dost soar above me. Aye, like the proud eagle do I fly, says Fendrel, but like a true warrior born do I strike. And he lands behind Volstagg, and before Volstagg can uh, actually do anything, he strikes with his quarterstaff with a thwack, and he knocks Volstagg face first into the water with an oof. And uh, Fandral saying, I pray that thou shalt find the sudden swim refreshing, most refreshing. Volstagg is sitting in the water, and his stick is floating there with him. And uh, Fandral leans up against the staff, and he's, uh, he's kind of, you can tell he's kind of laughing here. He says, I trust my passage to Asgard hath been justly earned. Ha, 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 that and more, says Volstagg. Thou art brash, reckless, and totally lacking in humility, boy. But a liking have I taken to thee. I shall personally endeavor to train thee in the finer arts of the warrior's craft. And who will train thee, says Fendrel? Have a care, lad. The enemies of Asgard all tremble at the mere mention of my valiant name. And the uh, caption says, "'Twas at that moment that the dashing youth finally learned the true identity of his companion. "'Thou art known without the realm,' says Fandral. "'Thy courageous deeds are legend. "'Forgive me for having dared to—' "'Nonsense, lad. "'Twas all in good sport.' And the two of them shake hands. Volstagg puts his arm around Fandral's shoulder, and he says, "'Come, let us celebrate our new friendship. "'A river of ale awaits us.' And it says, uh, and, and so they shift back to the modern day, and Fandral saying, Under the careful tutelage of the older warrior, the dashing youth grew to manhood, and eventually became one of the Golden Realm's greatest, most daring, and heroic. And a voice comes from beyond, Stop! Cease this madness at once! Release these children from thine evil spell! Dark sorcery alone could keep them so enthralled, so quiet and well-behaved, and, of course, it's Volstagg, and, and all the children are like, Father! And the, the kids is like, Uncle Fandrel was telling a most wonderful tale. Yeah, it was all about a handsome kid and an older, more experienced warrior. That was you, wasn't it? Perhaps, says Volstagg. I was quite dashing and handsome in the flower in my youth. Did he tell you how I conquered the great dragon Fafnir? Or how I single-handedly defeated the forty horsemen of Mogul the Merciless? Ah, uh, those are only made-up stories. 
Aren't they? Tell me, young Mick, dost thou seriously think that any true warrior born could ever forsake a life of adventure, intrigue, and excitement for the simple joys of marriage and family? Come, ye unruly pack of ruffians, thy mother awaits. Sooner would I challenge the death demons of Seth himself than risk the unterrifying worthy of her unrelenting wrath. And they all go off with Volstagg. All the kids are going with him. And Fandral says, A lucky man is Volstagg. Aye, says Hogan. Lucky indeed. And that is the end. Okay. Yeah, so obviously this is a tryout story of some description. Uh, probably, you know, they, they ran into these artists and, and so forth at conventions. And they want to give them something to stretch their legs on, see if they're actually you know, up to doing a book. I don't know who this Rich Yanazeski is, uh, so perhaps we can look him up and, and see if he's done anything else other than this. Um, the art is a bit crude, and that's what you'd kind of expect from a new, a new artist before he's really kind of found his legs. It's not, it's certainly not without talent. I think the, uh, um, the artwork is actually, it's, it's decent. I mean, the characters are fairly on model, not, not completely. Uh, there's a little bit of, uh, a little bit of wonkiness uh, to the anatomy. There's some, actually some truly bad anatomy uh, in, in certain parts of the story, but by and large, it's actually, it's pretty good. Um, the story very basic. I, I kind of recognize this from from the Norse mythology. It actually is kind of a, a nice little introduction and kind of a showing how the Warriors Three, I guess, kind of got started. Um, so it's actually kind of important as far as the lore is concerned. the The colors are a bit murky. I mean, they have Fandral in the sort of gray, gray and slate sort of of outfit. Doesn't look real good on him. Um, and he's not in his usual green. Why? I'm not really sure. He's also in this sort of slate outfit in the story. It's a slightly different design, but I would think that the story, I mean, it would have, would have uh, I think, been more um, dynamic looking had Fandral been wearing his normal clothes in the present day sequences. Um, it's just kind of weird that yeah, this is just his day to wear gray in both the story and in the uh, in the flashback. I can see him wearing gray in the flashback because he's not yet Fandral the Dashing, but okay. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of a minor niggle and what's actually a, a pretty good little story. So, can't, can't say anything too bad about that. All right, so let's go on to the next thing. Now, the next thing we have is a uh, another little um, five-pager. And this is called When Warriors Clasp. And this was written by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. Gary Hartle did the pencils. So again, a newcomer. Don Heck did the inks. Jack Morelli did the letters. Evelyn Stein did the colors. And Ralph Macchio was the uh, editor. So this is a, a kind of a an unusual way of telling a story. The narrative is though it's being told between Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. So we have, you know, Tom DeFalco in, in yellow, you know, the yellow word balloons. And then we have uh, Ron Friends in, in blue word balloons. So um, yeah, I'm going to have to try to remember what, I don't know what Ron Friends sounds like, but I know Tom DeFalco has like this really strong New York accent. So um, so anyway, we have uh, the splash page here shows Thor and Hercules. They are f uh, kind of facing off against each other. 
And something is weird. Oh, there, there's a stump between them, which is kind of odd, I guess, uh, but it's keeping us from seeing uh, Hercules' feet. So maybe that's, maybe he can't draw feet. Uh, maybe he is Rob Liefeld. I don't know. But anyway, uh, we have a um, little blurb here at the top. It says, For centuries without number, the gods have pondered a most perplexing question. Who is the greatest warrior of all? The mighty Thor or the heroic Hercules? And now, at long last, the answer can be told, featuring pulse-pounding excitement in the merry Marvel manner. Centuries without number, pulse-pounding excitement. Hey, Tom, you're laying it on a little thick. This is the big fight, Ron. Our readers expect big drama. Big, but not hokey. The legends speak of a day that will come, ages and ages hence, when these two titans are fated to meet, high atop a lonely plateau, on a deserted battle-scarred planet, which is an incomprehensible distance from Earth. Is it incomprehensible or incomprehensible? Don't sweat it, Ron. I'll use them both. I was afraid you'd say that. With nary a word of greeting, for none are needed. The proud combatants quickly assume their positions, and it looks like they're getting ready to arm wrestle on the stump on top of this big old plateau in the middle of nowhere on a planet uh, obviously an unfathomable distance away. The battle is joined with no quarter given and none asked. What's this quarter stuff, Tom? Oh, just an expression I picked up. Like it? It's definitely not you. Their arms throbbing with the force of innumerable jackhammers. The grim heroes strain against each other, and they're, they're doing this whole arm wrestling thing, and they're obviously, we see them from different angles, and they're looking angry and determined to, to win this arm wrestling contest. What should dump this bum? Don't sell Herc short. He didn't become the Lion of Olympus on good looks alone. Aside from old Goldilocks himself, the Big H has already beaten some major heavyweights like Firelord and the High Evolutionary. But Thunderface is an Avenger. He's defeated everybody from hyperactive supervillains to galaxy-conquering rogue gods. Ditto for Herc. Never before has the irresistible force of one god been so thoroughly tested by the immovable arm of the other. So they're kind of straining against each other and not really going anywhere. And as things uh, progress, they, they, they're kind of straining more and more, and they're kind of shouting out, or their, their mouths are open, and they're going, Ah! Continuing the heroic struggle, Thor and Hercules exert all their godly strength, all their immortal power, power which is truly incalculable, unmentionable, unrecordable, uncomprehendable. Ouch, so much would burn your thesaurus. Give me a break, Ron. You should pay Stan Lee a royalty on every line you type, Tom. Will you stop, please stop interrupting before I crack? What means crack? And uh, there's a giant crack in the storyline as they're, they're arm wrestling. And it seems though the plateau uh, has cracked entirely in half. Uh, so uh, it's cracked in half and it starts to crumble and Thor and Hercules go falling. And uh, Ron says, uh, Tom, old buddy, I think we have a problem, a big one. And they go falling to the ground. And Tom says, I don't believe it. They shattered the entire plateau. Count your blessings. They were generating enough pressure to knock the whole planet out of orbit. 
and they're still at it. So they're still clasping their hands even after the plateau fell. They're kind of fighting. They're arm wrestling without any kind of surface to arm wrestle on. And so this is just what they're doing for the rest of the story. And we have the dialogue here from, uh, from Tom and Ron. Are, are they crazy? What's it going to take to resolve this battle? A heck of a lot more than five pages we've slotted for this feature. This could go on for hours, days, weeks. These guys are immortal. We might even be talking years, decades, and centuries. Uh, maybe we could just leave this dangling plot line and never refer back to it. Get real. That kind of thing only works in mutant titles. Well, we could always tell our readers the truth. The Thor and Hercules are so evenly matched when it comes to raw strength that in a fight like this could go either way on any given occasion. Sounds like a cop-out to me. You got any better ideas? No. Then say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. And the, the two, uh, Thor and Hercules, just kind of go arm-wrestling off into the sunset. And that is the end. Okay, so it's a cute little story. The, uh, the writing is kind of doing a little bit of a clever thing here, very meta. Um, but it's not really all that wonderful. <laughs> um, but it is, you know, I guess it's entertaining enough for five pages. They had to come up with something to, to, to fill in the space. So anyway, uh, art-wise, it's decent. It's nothing to write home about. The, the Don Heck inks are... I guess they, they work. They work for this particular artist style, but you can definitely see that this artist is um, very strongly influenced by George Tusca, an artist that I'm not particularly fond of, but obviously you know, Marvel liked it. I don't know if this, uh, this artist, uh, Gary Hartle, ever really went on to do anything else. Uh, well, maybe we'll check at the end of the episode. That'll be something we can do. Uh, to, to uh, round out the issue. Anyway, uh, we then move to another story, and this will be our uh, final story for this uh, issue. And then we have, after the story, we have a, a pinup of Sif, which uh, is just basically, it's Sif, she's sitting there, she's in her red and white armor with the little wings on her head, and she's got her sword there, and it says, Warrior Woman of Asgard, Sif. And so John Workman and Joe Sinnott did it. It's a nice little pinup. They actually kind of resisted the temptation to make it like a, a Playboy pinup, which is kind of nice, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's an appealing enough pinup. I guess, I guess it's okay. Um, anyway, so then we'll go talk about the story. All right. So the last story in this issue we have is a Loki story, interestingly enough. And it is called Loki. In Evil Aborning, Randall Friends was the scripter. Charles Vess did the art. Christy Shield did the colors. Michael Helsler did the letters. Ralph Macchio did the editor. And Tom DeFalco did the editor-in-chief. Oh, sorry, he was the editor-in-chief. Well, maybe he did the editor-in-chief as well. I don't know. So anyway, we have uh, Odin, and he's standing on a, uh, like a, a riser, and he's obviously judging Loki for something he's done. And the uh, scene is set here, the throne room of omnipotent Odin in eternal Asgard many, many years ago. And Loki has been pulled in front of him and is being held by a couple of guards. The, uh, we'll talk about the style of the story kind of at the end, but we have a very Elizabethan-looking uh, set of clothing here on Loki. So it's much like the Shakespeare stories that, that uh, 
Charles Vest was doing around the same time uh, over at DC. But anyway, uh, we have uh, Odin judging Loki, and he says, Thou hast gone too far this time, Loki. For this base prank I sentence thee to a fortnight in detention. Thinkest thou well on thine actions this day? Such behavior is unbefitting a prince of the realm eternal. I have spoken. It shall be as thou dost command, father. And one of the guards here is all holding on to Loki's chains. He's thinking to himself, Indeed, the punishment doth fit the crime. Surely Loki doth grow more brazen and defiant with each passing day. And they, they lead Loki away, and Loki is thinking to himself, Posturing blowhard, he cannot truly believe I shall quietly accept such an indignity. And they lead him down into a, a dungeon sort of, uh, of room and lock him down there. This dungeon is pretty much identical to the dungeon in every Robin Hood movie you've ever seen. So, so we kind of know where, where uh, Charles Vess is getting his, um, his uh, inspiration here. And Loki is thinking to himself, The All-Father lavishes attention on my disgustingly noble half-brother Thor, which only serves to feed Thor's already insufferable arrogance, while he all but ignores me. The only time he deigns to notice my presence is when he is meeting out some ignoble punishment. And we have a, a caption here that says, Using a rudimentary form of hypnosis, Loki causes himself to seem invisible to the befuddled guards. And the guard is there bringing in some uh, water or something, and he uh, says, Heimdall's eyes! He's gone! How can this be? Quickly, sound the alarm! Loki has escaped! And he runs off to tell somebody, and of course leaves the door open. So Loki goes slipping out invisibly, and the other guards are saying, Impossible! No one has entered or left the area! And so we have a caption here, Gathering a bundle of clothes, a small pouch containing gold, and a dagger for protection, Loki steals a horse and rides forth to seek his destiny. Leaving Asgard, Loki crosses the plain of Ida and heads towards the sheer cliffs of the Asgardian mountains. And yeah, we see a view of uh, a castle of some description, um, and uh, Loki is riding away on a white horse, and he's riding a, b a bunch of rocks and stuff. Loki rides far into the foothills, pushing the steed relentlessly, and after several days without food or rest, the haggard creature expires. And so they show the, uh, the horse falling down dead and foaming at the mouth, and Loki is there, and he's standing in the middle of this sort of uh, rocky landscape, and there's just a few little twisted, shrubby sort of bushes and no, no other plants. And um, he says out loud, Curse thee and thy forebears, worthless bag of horseflesh. Because of thy untimely demise, I have fallen and bruised my wrist. And he continues on without the horse, and he's thinking to himself, No matter how lonely the trek or how arduous the climb, never will I return to Asgard unless it be as its absolute ruler. And the caption says, after a long and dangerous ascent, he finally crosses into Alfheim, the abode of the Light Elves. Days have passed since he is eaten, but he is nourished by the bitter taste of hatred. He is driven by the knowledge that one day he will know the sweet taste of revenge. And we see uh, in Alfheim there's like these big huge trees and waterfalls and that kind of thing. 
And then we ship scenes, and we are in Asgard, and we have the vizier here, or a vizier. Uh, it could be the same vizier, just he looks a lot younger, uh, so maybe it is. And of course we have Odin here, and Odin has two eyes in this story, so it's obviously a very long time ago. And uh, he is chewing out the guards who let Loki escape, and the guards are saying, Forgive us, Lord Odin. We know not how Loki escaped. Our vigilance was like unto Heimdall's own. There is not to forgive, brave warriors, says Odin. Thou canst not hope to match Loki's talent for the black arts. It is he whom I hold responsible. Blame thyselves no more. And I guess the guards go away, and he, Odin's talking to the vizier here. Well, good vizier, canst thou consult the flames and show me the whereabouts of thy way... Well, good vizier... Canst thou consult the flames and show me the whereabouts of my wayward son? Twill take time, my lord. No doubt Loki has used his magics to shield himself from discovery. And the vizier sets to work and says, Time passes until... Ah, the flames reveal thy son to be entering the enchanted forest on foot. He is unharmed at present. I shall send a detachment of warriors to return him. He will not learn to trifle with this sire. My lord, perhaps Loki's rebellious nature may be vented in the wild. He must face his inner demons alone. At best thou shalt only forestall that which must be. Returning him here will solve nothing. I spoke with the anger of a father, loyal one. Thou art correct. Though it saddens me greatly, I must allow my son to find his own way and to bear the full price for his hatred and bitterness. And we shift scenes back to Loki, and he's going through this like deep, dark forest, these huge, humongous trees. Loki has been drawn to the enchanted forest, as though somehow sensing his destiny awaiting him there. He enters the dark, foreboding woods cautiously, but shortly drops his guard. Suddenly... And he is attacked, Loki is attacked by a bunch of, uh, like, pixie gnome sort of things. Uh, it says here that they're trolls. Um, they're not trolls like you would think, as like, like Ulick the trolls. It's more sort of uh, traditional type trolls. They're, they're much smaller than Loki, and they're like, these, they're like naked, mischievous little boggart type things, I guess is what you call them. And Maloki's like, trolls! Or maybe he's just calling them trolls as an insult. I don't know. And they're going, hee hee hee, ha ha ha, get him, get him. Pretty gold, jingle jangle, hee hee. Ooh, looky, sharp. And they steal his gold, and they steal his money, and they steal his knife, and they all go running away. And there's a wizard, and we find out that the wizard's name is Eldred, and he, he discovers Loki... Uh, hanging out in the unconscious in the underbrush, and he uh, is gathering up uh, Loki to get to rescue him. And he says, uh, Oh, my young friend, those trolls are a nasty lot. Thou art beaten badly and will require far more attention than I can give you here. And uh, we show the two of them in some kind of a boat, and there's a, a pointy castle on an island, it looks like, and they're being blown there by the wind from the looks of things. And there's like these very, uh, uh, very poofy and colorful clouds. So they're kind of going through this landscape. And it says, 
Magical winds carried them to Eldred's castle across the Sea of Marmora, near the border of Asgard and the outer regions. In the months that follow, Eldred nurses Loki back to health and comes to admire his craftiness, a natural sorceress talent. And we see um, the two of them, they're by a big bubbling cauldron and they're, 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 they're doing some kind of magic spells. And yeah, so he basically is teaching Loki magic. Despite the misgivings of his light elf servants, Eldred takes Loki on as his apprentice and he becomes the son Eldred never had. Eldred teaches Loki the secrets of the sacred runes and other forbidden arts. Loki pretends a benevolent disposition towards his teacher, biding his time and learning all that Eldred can teach. In the forest, Loki learns of the secrets of herb lore and the magical uses of various plants, and it shows the two of them in the woods, and they're kind of picking around for something, and the old man saying, one must be careful to pick mandrake root during the proper planetary phase, for as the psychic tides change, so do the magical properties of the various plants. And then we see them back in the castle, and they're, they're just like casting runes, and Loki's looking at some kind of scroll, and the old man is saying, Only through the proper use of the sacred runes may one master the fire elementals and the power they confer. And Loki's thinking to himself, the gullible old fool gives me the very means with which to destroy him and claim his deepest secrets. And then we come to uh, a day sometime in the future, and Loki is uh, in his astral form, kind of flying around. It says, uh, one autumn eve, as Eldred lay sleeping, Loki journeys in his astral form to Muspelheim. And he's thinking to himself, I must carry out my plan now, before the senile old fossil suspects anything. And, of course, you know, Muspelheim is the realm of the fire demons. And we see Surt. And this is Surt as he appeared in his original appearance in uh, uh, the early Thor issues. So it's kind of the big, kind of top-heavy Surt with the claws. It's actually kind of a cool-looking Surt. So apparently Surt can see Loki in his astral form, which is kind of an ability that I wouldn't think Surt would have. But anyway, he says, Puny as guardian, what has Surt to do with the likes of you? Loki comes as a friend, fiery one, to offer a mutually beneficial pact, an alliance to bring me the power I crave and the souls thou dost crave. I don't think Surt craves souls, but anyway, anyway. I offer thee the soul of Eldred, the Enchanter, in exchange for Eldred's sorceress power and an alliance with thee against Asgard. Surely Asgard contains more noble souls than even one such as thee can consume. And the caption says, For sixteen years Loki has nursed his hatred, fanned the spark of bitterness, until now it bursts forth as fiery vengeance. As Surtur accepts the pact, Loki feels only grim satisfaction, not an ounce of regret for his base betrayal he has set in motion. And we get a close-up of uh, Loki looking very pleased with himself. And we shift scenes, and we're back in the Sanctum Sanctorum of Eldred. And they're casting some kind of a spell together inside a, uh, a protective uh, circle. We call upon thee, Lord of the Fiery South. Heed our commands, and open unto us the gates of the fiery kingdom. Send unto us Surtur, lord of the fire demons. We command thee. And it says here, 
It has taken several days for Loki to convince Eldred that he is ready to invoke such a demon to visible appearance. Eldred suspected no more than youthful exuberance. Now he is in the grip of icy fear. He knows that Loki has been hiding the true extent of his power. He knows that Loki tricked him into making himself vulnerable. He knows too late. And the searcher is uh, summoned forth and he's looking very Grinch-like. He's kind of crawling up out of the floor. And he, yeah, he kind of looks very Grinch-like, I think, in, the, in this picture. But uh, big and red and top-heavy. And yeah, Loki is standing behind Eldred. And he says, You know much of the black arts, old fool. But your knowledge of the darkness that may lurk in a god's soul is sorely lacking. And he gives the Eldred a big shove out of the circle. And Eldred is like, By the gods, no, don't push me from the protection of the circle. No! And he pushes him out, and I guess he's being eaten by Surt. And Loki is standing there looking all proud, and he, he says, Ah, I can feel Eldred's power as it courses through my very being. I am triumphant! And we uh, show him... Uh, then he's going to returning all these um, elves back to Alfheim. It says here, the light elves mourn the death of their kindly master and curse Loki for his treachery against the one who had befriended him. Eldred's castle comes under the iron grip of the evil one who makes it his own. And from within, it is now utterly cold and cheerless walls. Loki plots the downfall of Asgard and his hated half-brother. And we have a... A last shot here of Loki sitting in a big, um, it's like a throne, but it's like a, like a big bird's mouth, and he's sitting in the bird's mouth, and uh, he's going, ha, 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 and as the young god of evil celebrates his victory, the fading echoes of the light elves' curse continue to haunt the shadowy chamber. The end. So, this last story, what do we think of it? Okay, well, I'm going to point out something right away that, that uh, is, is more than just a nitpick and something that really, really bothered me. And that is the, um, well, A, that he, they're placing Loki, his, his castle in Alfheim. We know from other issues that Loki's castle is actually in Asgard. We're not really told exactly where, but, but it's not in, in Alfheim. It's actually in the realm of Asgard. Um, now, maybe that changed later. I don't know. Um, we get kind of a, a weird view of Cert here. Um, Cert being all about souls. He's not freaking Satan. And I think that they've kind of forgotten that here. Cert is not the kind of demon that wants people's souls. He wants to destroy them with fire. That's just kind of it. And, and that's kind of key to the story is this thing about him wanting Eldred's soul. So I don't like that for this reason alone. So the story doesn't work for me uh, on that level that Cert is just badly portrayed. Now, it's a real shame because there's a lot about the story that's really good. Um, I like that they're trying to do kind of an origin for Loki. Now, we get more origin of Loki later. Um, and this kind of, I think, has kind of been forgotten by the continuity. Maybe you can shoehorn it in somewhere, but I, I really don't think that this is canon uh, in any kind of way. The artwork is fantastically amazing, I have to say. Love Charles Vess's artwork. I've always liked Charles Vess's artwork. The problem that we have with it in this story 
is that it's not well reproduced. Um, he draws with a lot of little fine lines. And when you're printing on Baxter paper or newsprint and you've got all these little fine lines, they get clumpy. They, they kind of all clump together. And this was especially true at this time. Now, what was going on at this time in comics was they were switching from the use of metal printing plates to the use of plastic printing plates. And plastic printing plates, they were much cheaper. It allowed the, the comic companies to hold the, the cost of their books down. But what would happen with fine line work is they would kind of congeal into solid lumps. So a lot of the subtlety of the original art is lost. I love Charles Vess's artwork, and I love the fact that he has this, this really finely detailed art. Nowadays, you know, they'd be able to reproduce it faithfully. But back then, it, you know, it, it made it kind of muddy, and the coloring doesn't really help that. There's this kind of murky and muddy, and despite that, the artwork is absolutely gorgeous. So imagine what it would be like in the original pencils. I would love to see some of these pages in the original pencils. Uh, one of the things, of course, that, that I love about uh, Vess, he, he definitely takes a, a, a Barry Windsor Smith sort of, of, of approach. Uh, we get, actually get uh, you know, P. Craig Russell influence here, Barry Windsor Smith influence here. You can really see P. Craig Russell's influence in the clouds and the... Um, uh, page 59, where they're taking the boat across to Eldred's castle. Um, very, very P. Craig Russell there. We're going to see a lot more of Charles Vest's fantasy work in the late 80s and 90s, and particularly in the Sandman series, because we have a lot of backups and that kind of thing uh, that he was doing for Neil Gaiman. And beautiful, beautiful stuff it is, too. It's, it's kind of a shame that, that it was marred by some kind of lackluster reproduction but but such was the nature of the beast at the time all right so that covers the the issue thor number 400 i'm not going to do my normal review obviously i've been kind of reviewing each story as we go but let's uh, find out what has happened to these two new artists let's see if they continued working in comics and uh, let's start out with uh, Rich Yanizeski. Never heard of him before, but you never know what you might find on the internet. So a quick perusal of the internet shows that Rich Yanizeski actually does have a, um, you know, I wouldn't say it's a huge career, but he actually did get around. Did some stuff in the 80s and 90s, and it looks like uh, some, a lot of that stuff has, has been reprinted. Uh, he worked on Thor a number of times. Looks like we have uh, more of Rich Yanizeski uh, to, to cover on this show. Um, you know, he did uh, the Citizen Kang uh, crossover, the book. This was, of course, back in 1992. Looks like it's been reprinted a number of times. Uh, he did some G.I. Joe, did Thunderstrike, did some Iron Man, Fantastic Four, um, all kind of in that same general era. Uh, he was apparently one of the main artists on the Citizen Kang crossover. Uh, he worked on the Fantastic Four annual. He worked on the Avengers annual. So, yeah. So, so actually, we do have a, a little bit of work by, um, by him. Don't know if he's still doing comics nowadays, but that's what I can find. I'm guessing that probably he isn't. Looks like the, uh, he doesn't really have a wiki page or anything like that. So I'm guessing that not really a big artist as time went on. 
the other artist that we were looking at is Gary Hartle, who did the uh, the other story here with uh, the uh, Hercules Thor arm wrestling thing. Um, he did a little bit of comics, and it was all right around this era. Um, he didn't really do much beyond in, into the uh, into the nineties, but he does look as though he switched over to the animation field. Looks like he had directed some stuff with um, with Animaniacs. Um, and other Looney Tunes properties. Uh, looks like he may have even worked on the Thor Tales of Asgard a cartoon show. So, yeah, he, he does storyboards and directing, you know, producing and supervising, directing and storyboard artists on various Marvel cartoons. And, yeah, um, so obviously he's kept his foot in it, still active to this day, working on various properties and uh, interesting stuff, yeah. Uh, obviously made a, a good name for himself in animation. So maybe the comics thing didn't quite work out, but, you know, he got something good out of it anyway. So it's good to see that uh, Gary Hartle has quite the career after all. All right. So that's about it for this week, folks. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed part two of the uh, Thor number 400. Now, obviously, wasn't as exciting. But by and large, there's some pretty good stuff here. I mean, you know, we got some great Charles Viss artwork and some other stuff. But hey, you know, that's it. That's how it goes with these uh, backup features. They're kind of a mixed bag. But hey, that's the way it works. Hope you all enjoyed the show for this week. Thanks again, folks, very much for listening. We really do appreciate it. If you want to email the show, you can do so. The email address is radiofreeasgard at gmail.com. You can also join us over on the Facebooks. Let us know what you think of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, let us know what you think of Jurassic World. Yeah, just uh, yeah, feel free to come over and chat with us. And uh, look for Radio Free Asgard on Facebook, and you'll find us. And with that, I am back over the Rainbow Bridge, back to Midgard, and we'll see you next time here on Radio Free Asgard. Radio Free Asgard is copyright Tom Harris USA Productions, which is totally responsible for its content. The characters, stories, and situations presented on this program are copyright their respective copyright holders and are presented for entertainment, review, and educational purposes only. No ownership is implied. We make no money from this podcast and the contents are believed to be covered under fair use. If you like what you've heard on today's program, we'd appreciate it if you leave us an iTunes review, send us an email with your feedback, tell your friends, if you have any, or annoy your coworkers with our incoherent ramblings and silly voices. Thanks once again for listening to Radio Free Asgard. <laughs>